welcome. This is the uh, next uh, podcast in the history of anatomy. This one's entitled Taking Sides, the Birth of Science and the Philosophy of Anatomy. I'm going to start with a quote from Galileo Galilei, 1564 to 1642, in a letter to his friend Federico Cesi, uh, written on June 30th, 1612. We must not ask nature to accommodate herself to what we may think the best arrangement and disposition, but must adapt our intellect to what she has produced. I like that, uh, that quote. Vesalius had produced a book on anatomy, which we've discussed in the last podcast, that became, in a sense, more famous for its pictures than for its text. At the heart of his humanism was, however, a linguist whose Latin writing style was convoluted, old-fashioned, and for most physicians, not particularly comprehensible. Actually, in his biography of Vesalius, the American neurosurgeon Harvey Cushing wrote that as a book, the Fabrica has probably been more admired and less read than any publication of equal significance in the history of science. Um, I think it's easy to underestimate the reading public as similar accusations actually been aimed at Stephen Hawking's 1991 A Brief History of Time, that everybody has a copy but nobody's read it. Um, so a little unfair, perhaps, on Vesalius as well. But the wide dissemination and popularity of his book, The Fabrica, was, however, a product of its visual reliance, first in the confirmatory observations students themselves could make during their own dissections, and then as his dazzling pictures by von Kalka imprinted into the memory. And after a millennium and a half, Vesalius had succeeded in resuscitating interest in a dormant subject as anatomy, and what he'd shown was that the process of dissection, even if rooted in the early editions of the past, could be moulded into a contemporary subject with an academic future. Available to everyone, Vesalian anatomy became the materia medica of discovery and debate. There is, however, no discrete connection between the establishment by Vesalius of a curriculum of dissection of the cadaver and the purported origins of a scientific method, really the origins or the birth of science. But the one logically preceded the other. In the Editio Princeps, the preface to the Fabrica, Vesalius actually boldly announces an ambitious plan to the emperor, not of some clearly articulated how-to dissection manual, but rather about something wholly aspirational, where an accurate knowledge of the anatomy of the human body could directly benefit mankind. It was something else that Vesalius brought to his revolution, the sense of this moral obligation for dissectors to dissect. And in that duty, he writes of anatomy and dissection in particular as the highest and most noble goal of men, a practice advanced through its doing and seeing, which after so long a period of neglect was in, quote, a need of resurrection, unquote. As a new science, the task for anatomy was nothing less than that of its cousins, physics and chemistry and astronomy, to define the physical rules governing the surrounding world. The British philosopher Bertrand Russell writes, I think somewhat triumphantly, and with some artifice in his history of Western philosophy, that science emerged in a conceptual sense only after about 1700. And that small but emphatic sentence would, it seems to me, appear to have been the primary stimulus for A.C. Grayling, the master of the New College of Philosophies in London, to articulate a similar case in his recent and popular The Age of Genius, the 17th century and the birth of the modern mind. What's more, in his book, Grayling suggests that incessant European conflict was a prerequisite for a flourishing modern scientific culture rather than uh, a mere backdrop. I think uh, at the time, principally the Anglo-Dutch maritime wars and the religious demarcation of the Netherlands as a Calvinist North and as a Catholic South, which abated, if only in part, by a series of 
treaties culminating in the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia following the Eight Years' War is really what he's referring to. The period forms the background uh, to uh, another podcast. Uh, uh, it's actually the next podcast on the Netherlandish art of, um, uh, of dissection. But what's more, in this idea, Grayling's suggestion that there is incessant conflict, which is the stimulus for science, uh, is somewhat novel. I think in a broad sense Russell is correct when he asserts that there was a distinct time when science as a discrete enterprise was born. But if we're to roughly accept his magical year of 1700, then prior to that time, the natural phenomena, particularly those viewed with some fear, such as the eclipses or the appearance of comets, would have been regarded as portents and omens. But after this, the mathematics of Newton forced even the celestial bodies into an obedient submission to a collection of articulated natural laws that provided some kind of predictability concerning the observable universe. The age of magic as an explanation of natural physical events was effectively over, even if the astronomers still protected their astrological charts and esteemed scientists like Newton himself continued dabbling in alchemy. Galileo may have been forced by the church to recant his observations with the telescope, but that would ultimately not prevent his findings contributing to the inexorable progress of science. He may have been confined by decree under house arrest, but the dissemination of his predictions about the universe and his hand-drawn images of the surface of the moon spread so rapidly that any attempt at ecclesiastical uh, censorship was futile. The sciences developed as visually verifiable enterprises, where anyone with the right instruments, empirically observing the heavens or dissecting a human body for that matter, could literally see things for themselves. And this is part, really, of my progressive thesis about the idea of the visual content of anatomy and its change, really, from an oral AURAL tradition. For anatomy to emerge, however, within the family of sciences and to transform from ignorance to enlightenment, it could only do so as a distinctly visual practice. Even as the experiences of cadaveric dissection were supplanted by illustrations and models, its core, remission, uh, core mission really remains the same. Through Vesalius, anatomy became a personal participating sport, and gone under his watch were these rather unfathomable textbooks. The recitative mantras, the ostensors pointing out the places where the body was expected to match the written word. The teachers instead became what were called demonstrators, and the students of anatomy dissected bodies for themselves, learning through simple scrutiny, simple observation, how to annotate its constancies as well as its variations. With each contemporary dissection, the structural patterns of the body were recognised and confirmed, and there was a conscious decision within the discipline of anatomy to convert its appreciation and understanding from that oral to a distinctly visual tradition. Now, given that shift in the sensory diffusion of technical knowledge, it was only natural that Vesalius would achieve his goal through innovative images of the complexity of the interior of the human body. The immediacy of Vesalius's dissections also afforded those in the front rows of his travelling demonstrations the lucky prospect of turning the organs over in their hands to feel their texture and consistency and the chance to examine their size and their shape or even experience their odour. But as it was forming as a discipline of private discovery, anatomy and the Vesalian method also came of age in the mind of the public. Despite the availability of dissecting substitutes, even in Vesalius's time, the rediscovery of anatomy itself was contemporaneous with the reinvention of high art and architecture and poetry. But anatomy in the face of this exponential advance in artistic showcasing still lagged a long way behind, even as it had uh, stimulated a populist awareness by moving from the universities to the public squares. Anatomy started to reach a much wider audience than initially intended, aided by the now ceaselessly rolling printing presses 
with some of its more prurient imagery appealing in popularity to those even unable to read the accompanying Latin texts and some who are functionally illiterate. By 1538, five years before Vesalius had actually brought out the Fabrica, prints of woodcuts, which were called fugitive images, were sold commercially throughout Europe as male and female pairs, where the figures were made of strips of paper partially pasted on top of one another, which would simulate a dissecting experience, permitting a progressive peeling away of each individual layer to reveal the internal anatomy. And these images were collated and catalogued by Ludwig Schulant in his uh, 1852 book and what he called the Fliegendeblatter, the flying leaves, uh, in his book, book The Geschichte und Bibliographie der Anatomischen. Um, so these fugitive sheets were around the time that Vesalius actually um, plastered them on uh, to an articulated skeleton. So these were different ways of simulating a dissecting experience. In amongst an eclectic audience, Vesalius came to the realisation not only of the imperative of his new mission to resuscitate the subject of anatomy as a whole, but also to carry out a broader mandate through its finest illustration and to convey a more basic message capable of exceeding the limitations of language. His appeal was diverse, with one eye on his educated students, but another on the unschooled public. That dual audience was always the target of the anatomists, part scholars and part showmen. A century on, the paintings on the walls of Leiden's Theatrum Anatomia were testament to the power of iconic imagery, manacled to the formal anatomization of criminals, and which served a particular social purpose. Starting every public dissection, the condemned with extensive prayers articulated on the one hand a desire to glorify God through a greater understanding of the hidden treasures of the human body. But on the other was a utility that the public process of dissection had as a warning to would-be felons. During the summer months, these amphitheatres were converted into public displays of skeletons and morbid dioramas made from the detritus of preserved human blood vessels, the rubble of bladder and kidney stones and parts of the intestines of children. The general public was well enough versed in the not-so-subtle clues and covert language embedded into the paintings that were uh, adorning the walls, many of which alluded in their vanitous themes to the transience of human existence. The intonations of the anatomists to know thyself, nos et ipsum, had first come down from the inscriptions in the Praneus to the entrance to the Temple of Apollo, the so-called vestibule at the front of the temple enclosed by a portico and side walls. It was a maxim from Delphi that had adorned the frontispieces of many of the anatomy atlases and which had been printed on the walls of most of the dissecting rooms. These little reminders featured alongside the Vanitas paintings that were crammed with their snuffed-out candles, stray skulls, bouquets of withering flowers, rotting fruit and the images of the large mayflies whose lifespan was less than a single day. Each of these things were the symbols of the fleeting nature of life and of the fate awaiting all, no matter their station. And whether they were literate or not, the public would have been aware of these uh, symbolic messages in a way we're not aware of uh, the imagery uh, at that time now. Paintings with this sort of symbolism were just as seminal in many dissecting halls as were its collections of bones and fossils, the wall space in Amsterdam and Leiden filled with their little life homilies, pulvis et umbra sumus, where dust and shadow, or homo bulla, man is a bubble, vita brevis, life is short, mors ultima linea rerum, death is the ultimate line. The walls were full of these little homilies. The final destiny of all men, death confirmed as a skeleton, became the symbol of the anatomist and was linked in a pivotal way to an adopted aphorism originally attributed to the Roman poet Horace, which was etched in capitalised letters above a skeleton in its crypt uh, from a work by Masaccio, 
1401 to 1428, the image really one of the first relatively anatomically correct skeletons is the lower part of his restored Trinity fresco, which was made around 1426, which can be found in Florence in the nave of the Dominican Church Santa Maria Novella. And uh, uh, above that skeleton it reads, Io fuga quel che voi siete quel chi son voi a cosareta, was once what you are, and what I am you also shall be. The lettering written by Masaccia, not in Latin, but for the masses in Italian, was the credo of the anatomist, one of the first visual appearances in a church of an anatomically, essentially anatomically correct skeleton. And that important part of the painting was actually returned to its rightful place on the nave wall below the feet of Christ and the devotional images of Mary and St John. That painting, actually, I must say, even though it's an inspiration to anatomists, has been the subject of much debate, mostly because of its three-tiered vertical division of the linear perspective. That's perhaps the subject of another podcast. Um, It's a painting that was thought to be commissioned by Domenico Lenzi, who, along with his wife, portrayed in relief below the saints, and had been covered, actually, until 1861 by a Vasari altar, the bottom part which is uh, of the image, which is the sarcophagus, was separately discovered uh, by Ugo Procacci uh, in 1952 and then reunited with the rest of the painting, which had been moved to the left nave. The position of the skeleton would have been placed initially behind an altar, which would have meant that in order to see it, worshippers would have been forced to, to kneel. That, as I say, is a subject perhaps of another um, uh, podcast on perspective uh, and uh, anatomy. The looming image with its attached lower panel was deliberately repositioned. It would have been the first thing that parishioners would see at the entrance to the church after traversing a small public graveyard outside. But here is an example of a memento mori which foreshadowed the expectation of every 15th century anatomist and which portrayed a skeleton with which dissectors would soon become familiar. Masaccia's imagery of what they could anticipate had a dimensional realism that for the first time in the early 1400s was unique, absolutely genuine and deeply inspiring. And it's easy to imagine the emotional impact that that picture by Masaccio had on enthusiastic dissectors who viewed the image perhaps before starting their anatomy courses for the first time. The Trinity was highly influential and worshipped as an image, even if one or more of devotion and really of anatomical correctness. Actually, if you look at that image, the skeleton um, thought to be that of Adam is far from perfect. It's missing some ribs, also uh, (laughs) missing a sternum. But it should be realised that Masaccio painted it 25 years before Leonardo was born. The image excites art historians and theorists today far more than dissectors because of its complex treatment, as I've said, the linear perspective. Most likely, Masaccio was helped by his friend Brunelleschi in splitting the planes between God above, the figure of the crucified Christ, the saints, mortals, and then the skeleton below, and each sitting in its own sacred plane. The imperative of such an impression was that dissection should be considered more than mere examination of the body. It was a moral duty demanding that all men concern themselves with the quest for self-knowledge and in that search that they offer penitence, seek forgiveness and come to know God. Before anatomy could take its place amongst the new science of Kepler and Galileo and of Newton, and declare itself a true discipline worthy of study, it needed to adopt some of science's recent structural elements. We might remember that anatomy was part of the natural philosophies, and it could only break away from those natural philosophies and join the burgeoning sciences. William Harvey had shown the method of experimentation necessary in his explanations of the nature of the circulatory system by sequentially applying 
tourniquets on live volunteers and bloodletting them in order to demonstrate the direction of blood flow across the arteries and on towards the veins. The idea had actually been given to him by his teacher Fabricius, who in his dissection rooms had discovered the small directional valves in the veins, but who had not understood their significance. Uh, Fabricius actually describes these valves in his 1603 De Venorum, but he was not aware of uh, why they were there, what their importance was. Harvey's methodology, however, established the new science by postulating a theory or a hypothesis and then devising some basic research test which could either confirm or refute that idea. It was that new method that defined what science was, and which permitted it by an experimental process to incrementally advance the understanding of natural phenomena. Anatomy, however, had the problem of shaking off Galen if new discoveries in the dissecting room were ever to be made. But this would not prove a straightforward task, even when the rush to dissect showed so many disparities. Behind Galen lay Plato and Aristotle, and even though anatomy was forging itself by distancing from the philosophers, anatomists still felt compelled to align themselves to a particular philosophical credo in a way which would seem unthinkable for science today. The dissector may have demarcated himself from the metaphysician, but he couldn't effectively enter the dissecting room without a thorough working knowledge of the classics, so it was a different kind of era. Classicists were generally strict Galenists who melded in a fair chunk of the ancients taking what they considered the best of one and discarding the worst of the other. Both Aristotle and Plato had concerned themselves, for example, primarily with the nature of the soul, an issue that appealed to men like Friedrich Reich, who were intensely religious and well-versed in Greek philosophy. Plato was Aristotle's teacher, but he was an inherently more mystical individual who was far less practical and prolific than his student Aristotle. Speaking much of his philosophy and his dialogues, Plato did so through the voice of his own mentor, Socrates. Aristotle, on the other hand, wrote in a more forceful style about many more things and with a far more confident authority. Both philosophers, Aristotle and Plato, had their disciples sometimes breaking on regional grounds. For example, the rather ethereal nature of Plato's teachings and of his personality appealed more to the Florentines, whereas the pragmatic style of Aristotle attracted the Paduans. Um, as far as anyone's aware, Plato never performed dissection of the human body, and Aristotle only dissection or vivisection on animals. In Plato's case, his treatise, the Timaeus, is often quoted as the source of his anatomical views, but it's only a small fragment of his broader writings which merely outline his impressions of the gods. In it, however, Plato does divide the body into its three main regions, the neck and, and head, the breast, and the men's and women's apartments, if only to accommodate the constituents of the soul. He lodges the immortal soul above, relegating the mortal soul to the middle, and condemning the animalistic soul below. By contrast for Aristotle, man was just another animal, which he hadn't dissected, admittedly, but whose soul could be reached, like any physical problem posed, through the dissection of its parts. And this, he was certain, could be achieved by a physical or a mental dissection towards the simplest forms of inquiring questions possible. Put simply, if animals could be defined as things with a soul, then their dissection could reveal the different nutritive or vegetative souls necessary for their existence and growth. And these would naturally be separate from their sensate souls, with each of these component souls being different for different animals. Aristotelian anatomy was then a metaphysical concept whose parts could only be understood as a defined whole, and an appreciation of his notation was the stimulus for many anatomists to also undertake the dissection of animals and insects, the so-called field of comparative anatomy, which was much more important in the 17th, 18th, 19th century 
than it is in current anatomy. Celsus portrays both men as seeking the systematic order in anatomy as a prerequisite for explaining the function of each structure, and that too became a guiding principle of 17th and 18th century anatomists in their dissections of the human body. If one were to enter a 17th century anatomy class, it would still be possible to dissect corpses whilst embracing the ancient Greeks and maintaining an ambition of understanding how form fitted with function. The acceptance of Cartesianism, however, at least at its introduction, proved much more problematic. The philosophy of René Descartes was one which was far more deeply affected by the science unfolding around him, making it for some easier and for others more difficult to accept. For those taking on Descartes' ideas of the materiality of man separable from the soul, it would mean that the physical body could be reduced to its constituent components and be comparable to any well-oiled machine. Descartes thought, for example, that animals were soulless automata, and he reserved the simpler equations of physics as the explanators for their basic physiology. Man could be considered in his workings like the most intricate watch, but the possessor of a soul which could be located and studied, even if Descartes' dissections of the brain uh, had pro- uh, this had actually proven elusive. Descartes, for example, believed that the soul resided in the pineal gland, what he called the canarium. It was a small, flattened piece of tissue which was shaped like a pine cone and squeezed below and behind the curling posterior end of the corpus callosum, the so-called splenium, which connects the right and the left halves of the brain. Descartes was actually pretty distraught that uh, he could not readily find this region in his dissections, um, uh, and he had thought it was important and described since ancient times and in other religions to link the physical with the, the spiritual world. Of his efforts to find it, he laments in frustration in one letter to the Montpellier physician Lazare Messonnier uh, on the 29th of January 1640, quote, that I think it cannot be found, that is the canarium, because they, that is the anatomists, usually spend some days looking at the intestines and other parts before opening the head. In other words, it had kind of liquefied, that he was convinced that this was the seat of the soul. What was interesting about Descartes was that he used dissection to back up his basic philosophical tenets. He was quite unusual in that regard. In searching for the seat of the soul, the Dutch anatomists were unaware of similar efforts that had been made by Leonardo in his examinations of the skull back in 1489 to define with some mathematical precision the place of the sensa comune, the structure thought to integrate the senses. Leonardo had even filled the ventricles of the brain of an ox with melted wax, examining this area of interest that's now recognised as the third ventricle, with its drainage point below to the fourth ventricle, believed by him to be the seat of memory. Those Galenists still hanging on, uh, but concerned about the consequences of adopting a Cartesian method, had misread, really, the intentions of Descartes, and they were busy arguing that his devotees were advancing a philosophy which had perilously left no room for God. And in misconstruing Descartes' thinking, they had misunderstood the very nature of the man and underestimated his religious leanings. According to Bertrand Russell, when Descartes arrived in the Netherlands, he had amongst only a few books a copy of the Bible and one of Aquinas. Descartes would certainly have been aware of the recent 1616 condemnation of Galileo by the Inquisition and of the need to tread carefully in his new home. The likelihood was that Protestants, even more than Catholics, would have feared that his philosophy would be seen to falsely promote a new atheism. As a bulwark against such notions, he spent considerable time actually courting the clergy in an effort to soften their stance on ideas that he thought could reconcile an acceptance of God with the empirical science accumulating around them. 
it was in some ways an old dispute that he was compelled to conduct in different places at the same time as Amsterdam and Atomists, for example, were embracing Descartes, those in Leiden, which is a mere 25 miles to the uh, southwest, had for a short while at least forbidden any mention of his name. So it was a complex political arena. Men of science would hardly have relished the prospect of theologians and philosophers imposing their will onto their dissections and into the dissecting halls. But despite their apprehension, such interference was expected. For some, the conflicts actually proved too much. Reich, in his memoirs recalling one confused student of anatomy, asking Johannes Hornbeek, who was a cleric who was then attending dissections, Hornbeek 1616-1666, which one out of Galen and Descartes should really be believed? Hornbeck, in despair, only replied, quote, he followed holy scripture, unquote. And that's a, a, a quote in Luke Kuhlman's book on Reich called Death Defined, The Anatomy Lessons of Frederick Reich, a really excellent uh, book. Um, hard-going but excellent book. Even if the pursuit of anatomy was one which needed to be conducted with care, the trepidations attached to individual discovery were less severe than those imposed by the less objective disciplines such as the, such as the arts. At its most practical level, everything anatomists required was there right in front of them. And if they were to seek an historical connection to antiquity, they could afford to adopt the best presumptive tenets of a classical era and to jettison those without basis in fact. Now that simple idea of how anatomy would progress as a science proved actually far more difficult than it sounds. Anatomists had broader imperatives if they were to be left alone to conduct their examinations. Those dissecting corpses need not have exactly embraced Plato's notion that the universe was in effect a living creature for them to equate the invasive dissection of the human body with the penetration of the cosmos, for example. Leonardo compared his anatomic imagery with Ptolemy's cosmography, and his extensive literature defining the microcosmic structure of man as homologous to the macrocosmic schema of the universe. The Platonic view also proposed that man should reflect an inward likeness with the body containing an infinite series of internal miniatures in much the same way as the universe was an infinite expansive set of likenesses. So there were these views about how anatomy should effectively be ordered. For Plato, man was, quote, a likeness of something. And for many anatomists, despite its ob objectivity, dissection still remained a spiritual pursuit, the hierarchy of the body ennobling in particular the study of favoured organs. The surgeon Helkiah Crook, 1576-1648, wrote in his 1615 Microcosmographia of the head as the castle and tower of the soul, the mansion house of wisdom, the treasury of memory, judgment and discourse. Crook's contemporary Harvey in his writings showed a greater difference to the king that with his discovery of the circulation unsurprisingly assigned the heart at the centre not only of the body but also of the body politic. In the introduction to his De Motu Cordis, Harvey compares the heart of animals to the sovereign King Charles himself, quote, the heart of the republic and the fountain whence all power and grace doth flow, unquote. At its inception, science, however, remained particularly difficult to separate from religion. Whatever the distinctive interest in dissection and wherever it would take the dissector, there were many anatomists whose principal goal in examining the human body was to find signs of the hand of God. Even as the Cartesians came to dominate the anatomy rooms, there was still a need not only to organise the mechanics of how anatomy as the new science would progress, but also a means of ridding itself of the purveyors of magic. One of the more ethereal balancing acts for the anatomists 
was to reconcile the ancient philosophies and their polytheistic origins with the newest tenets of the Reformation into something that would be acceptable to the Church. The very foundation of the new science and of anatomy as its standard bearer indeed depended upon such a reconciliation. These considerations outside of the dissecting halls were no more theoretical than what was happening inside, and they provided a taste of the hesitant and dangerous atmosphere within any Renaissance centre of scientific research. Philosophical consensus, or perhaps lack of it, was, for example, an important factor in the deaths of Pico della Mirandola, 1463-94, Giordano Bruno, 1548-1600, and Michael Servetus. And none of the books written by those uh, three victims of their own pluralism would have been unknown to the anatomists. Servetus, who was burned at the stake for his blasphemies, we've actually met before uh, in earlier podcasts. Mirandola, in an overarching and comparative attempt to equate the great religions in his 1486 work, Oration on the Dignity of Man, found himself on the wrong side of Pope Innocent VIII. His book, which listed 900 points of consensus between the faiths banned by the newly formed censorship division of the Catholic Church, the Index Librorum, Prohibitorum. Um, Mirandola and his friend and presumed lover, the poet Angelo Poliziano, were both poisoned for their trouble. Actually, a recent excavation by the Bolognese anthropologist Giorgio Gruppioni of the graves of both Della Mirandola and Poliziano in San Marco in Florence has confirmed that they were poisoned by arsenic. Mirandola could not be saved despite his personal friendship with the Republic's power broker Lorenzo de' Medici and also with the firebrand Dominican friar Girolamo Savonarola, who for a short while dominated Florentine religious discourse until he too was burned at the stake for heresy. Bruno's blasphemy was more pedestrian. His strident and flamboyant advocacy for a Copernican universe irritating Cardinal Roberto Bellarmino and Cardinal Camillo Borghese, who later became Pope Paul V, and both sat in judgment and condemned Bruno to the flames in Rome's Campo de Fiori. The anatomists were alerted to the dangers of discovery, and they would have watched in horror the fate that had awaited the more vocal dissenters in fields of investigation, like Bruno Servetus, and della Mirandola, fields of investigation not unlike their own. Those risks aside, the principles of the new scientific method, however, needed to be accepted before they could be championed. A generation before Descartes, Francis Bacon, 1561-1626, had articulated the important and necessary distinctions between science, religion and magic, and anatomy could not have progressed, really, without Bacon's incremental influence. Unlike Descartes, Bacon did not concern himself with the metaphysical nature of the soul or with the existence of God. His task was more to clearly demarcate the divorce of science from the grip of the influential spiritualists, people like Cornelius Agrippa, Paracelsus, Girolamo Cardano and Giambattista della Porta, the great magicians and alchemists. Bacon's scientific legacy remains mixed, but he rightfully can claim two scientific achievements which exerted their effects on the conduct of dissection. The first was his inductive method, which promoted the continued observation of the universe through the obsessive accumulation of data. And that was certainly something near and dear to the heart of every anatomist. Bacon was the driving force for Darwin also, who wrote in his autobiography of his theory of evolution that, quote, I worked on true Baconian principles and without any theory collected facts on a wholesale scale, unquote. That comes from the autobiography of Charles Darwin, Recollections on My Mind and Character. Um, and this sort of approach of obsessive accumulation of data points and information was something very near and dear to the heart of every anatomist. 
but Bacon remains sceptical of the power of mathematical solutions to the problems of nature, rather suggesting that within any mass of observable data, immutable laws would just present themselves and become apparent. Even if Bacon never understood the arithmetic nature of the universe, his stated task to enumerate as much data as possible did have its compensations. Without the obsessive accumulation of data by Tycho Brahe, for example, 1546-1601, painstakingly notating the movement of the planets and the stars, Johannes Kepler, 1571-1630, would have been forced to spend a lifetime repeating Brahe's observations and would have been delayed or even totally stymied in the formulation of his own incontrovertible laws of planetary motion. Instead, Kepler accepted all of Brahe's measurements at face value and divined from Baconian principles the requisite governing formulae of motion. Without Kepler, Newton too might have struggled, acknowledging as much that his laws of motion had been gleaned only by standing on the shoulders of his predecessors. Although Bacon couldn't engage with any line of deductive reasoning or strictly posit one single scientific hypothesis, he did appreciate the separation of science from faith and the need for the clearer demarcation of both. That became important also for sciences and hence anatomy to advance. For Bacon, in his book The Advancement of Learning, the progress of science through individual discovery was something that plainly needed to be separated from the revealed word of God. He was also unable to see any practical benefit which could be derived from the ancient Greeks, and he thought their endless debates without substance. Science, theology and philosophy might, in a Baconian world, throw up inconsistencies, but in his mind these were not wholly incompatible. Anatomists who built their work on incremental discoveries and on ascribing the visible structures with their individual functions could firmly embrace these Baconian principles. Bacon's second contribution was an appreciation before the days of ready communication that science was a collective enterprise rather than the product of individual achievement. When the technical capacities for cooperation were so limited, that was a pretty lofty and aspirational call for collaboration in all of the sciences and a stimulus to some anatomists to visit the world's leading Theatre Anatomia. One imagines that it might also have been the inspiration for some anatomists in obsessively amassing their personal collections of anatomical curiosities. And that's the subject of a later podcast. Bacon's sentiment first appeared in his 1594 Gesta Graorum, The Deeds of Grey, in which he intones the king to establish some great place whose purpose was the collection of four things. In it there should be a library that houses all the books in the world, a botanical garden to rival those of Pisa, Padua, Heidelberg and Montpellier, a zoo with all the animals and fish known to mankind, and a laboratory holding all of the instruments of mills and factories, as well as the secrets of the philosopher's stone. Bacon's idea to establish a community of science was hardly a theoretical musing. In 1662, the founders of London's Royal Society acknowledged Bacon's House of Solomon and his New Atlantis as their prime inspiration for a new organisation which could be committed to the expression and the advancement of sciences. The clergyman philosopher Joseph Glanville had written in his 1665 Skepsis Scientifica that, quote, Lord Bacon Solomon's house in the New Atlantis was a prophetic uh, scheme of the Royal Society. The founders of the society, by the way, just included the architect Christopher Wren, the natural philosopher Robert Boyle, the warden of Wadham College, Bishop John Wilkins, statesman Sir Robert Moray, the mathematician, second Viscount Bruckner, the astronomer, Sir Paul Neal, the physician, Dr Jonathan Goddard, the astronomer, mathematician, Lawrence Rook, the astronomer, William Ball, merchant, Abram Hill, and the physician-economist, William Petty, 
It's interesting to look at the way Bacon influenced the development of the Royal Society. Uh, perhaps we should make that also another podcast. These societies would be created as places where the practitioners of reasoned science might be shielded from theological dogma. And although Bacon never articulated this notion in quite this manner, a scientific society as a safe haven of purest thought is an idea, I think, with which Copernicus and Galileo could not have shared a greater agreement. The new science, however, would be left not to Bacon, but to men who understood the meaning of the data and who, in an embracing epiphany, grasped how the physical world could respond to the expression of its inclusive laws. Collecting and testing the veracity of facts and figures, medieval scientists had been enslaved by data, which once amassed, was not really understood. Such endeavours were heralded by workmen like Brown and Bacon, who were merely collators of data, only capable of adding to the scientific edifice. But beyond this age was a more modern era, where observable phenomena were obedient to a fresh set of established rules, and whose experimental methods had been shepherded by intellectual giants. Galileo, Kepler and Newton were in a different class. They were able to trace the new and the old worlds with care, but each of them didn't really start that journey looking for cracks that might destroy any accepted wisdoms, even though by the finish of their labours each had dismantled his examined universe. Like Vesalius, when their observations could no longer fit their expectations, each had grasped the novelty of antagonism.